Welcome to Cineversary, a podcast that celebrates a milestone anniversary of a masterful work of cinema. Each month we send happy birthday wishes to a different film currently observing a joyous jubilee. That's everything from a 20th to a 100th anniversary. I'm your host, Eric Martin, creator and moderator of the Cineverse Film Discussion Group that meets weekly in the Chicagoland area. So this time around, we go back eight decades to revisit arguably the greatest political and patriotic film ever made, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, which enjoys an 80th anniversary this year. Like any good birthday party, Cineversary invites special guests to partake in the celebration. In this installment, I'm honored to be joined by one of the very best film historians and Frank Capra scholars, San Francisco State film professor Joseph McBride, who's authored many books on famous filmmakers, including Frank Capra, The Catastrophe of Success, Steven Spielberg, A Biography, Searching for John Ford, and Hawks on Hawks. Joseph and I will explore why Mr. Smith Goes to Washington is worth celebrating all these years later, its cultural impact and legacy, what we can learn from the picture today, how it stood the test of time, and more. Prior to my interview with Mr. McBride, however, I wanted to fill you in on the backstory of this month's featured movie, per Wikipedia. Mr. Smith Goes to Washington is a 1939 American political comedy drama film directed by Frank Capra, starring Gene Arthur and James Stewart, and featuring Claude Rains and Edward Arnold. The film is about a newly appointed United States senator who fights against a corrupt political system and was written by Sidney Buckman based on Lewis R. Foster's unpublished story, The Gentleman from Montana. The film was controversial when it was first released, but successful at the box office, and it made Stewart a major star. Its original theatrical release date was October 17, 1939. Mr. Smith Goes to Washington was nominated for 11 Academy Awards, winning for Best Original Story. Considered to be one of the greatest films of all time, the film was selected by the Library of Congress for preservation in the United States National Film Registry in 1989, deeming it culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. It currently holds a 95% fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes, where its average critical score ranks an 8.23 out of 10. All right, let's have some fun by taking a trip back to 1939 and hearing the film's original trailer. Mr. Smith Goes to Washington is a significant picture. It is significant because it emphasizes democracy in action. I consider it a real privilege and a real experience to have played even a minor part under the distinguished direction of Frank Capra. By far the greatest picture of filmdom's top director, three-time winner of the coveted Academy Award, the most timely, the most vital, the most significant picture ever to come out of Hollywood. A homespun boy and a hard-boiled, worldly-wise girl in a picture carved out of the everyday lives of everyday Americans. 
with those inimitable Capra overtones of drama, laughter and romance, plus the finest supporting cast ever assembled. Before my interview with Joseph, be forewarned, spoilers ahead. So if you've not already viewed Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, hey, it's your civic and patriotic duty to pause this podcast now and watch this classic. Okay, is everybody back? Then it's my pleasure to introduce film historian and scholar Joseph McBride. Joseph, thank you so much for uh, agreeing to be a guest here on our podcast, and I couldn't think of a better guest for this month's installment, which is Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Now, you've written two books on Frank Capra, which we'll hear more about, and I think you told me this is your personal favorite Capra film. Is that correct? That's right, and one of my favorite films of all uh, films. It's just, uh, you know, one of the, I mean, maybe the best American political film. Somebody said uh, The Man Who Shed Liberty Valance is, I suppose those two are right up there, and uh, uh, Mr. Smith is a film that's always inspired me, and uh, it's a very complex film, and there's a lot to say about it. So let's get into it here. Why is this movie, Joseph, why is it worth celebrating all these years later? So why does it still matter, and how has it stood the test of time, in your opinion? Just, you know, one thing Capra said to me uh, when I interviewed him extensively for my biography, Frank Capra, The Catastrophe of Success, he... Um, he said he often told people it's it's Wonderful Life, he thought was his best film, but he really believed that Mr. Smith was his best film, and I said, why? And he said, because it's bigger. He said, it's a film about our country, and I think that's a good hmm. comment, and I would agree. It, it walks you through our whole political process the way it's supposed to work. It doesn't often, like, especially today, work the way it's supposed to work, but it's a very stirring patriotic film in that sense, because it, it's about the Constitution and how, how Congress works, and uh, Jean Arthur, who, who is my favorite actress, is the secretary of this naive senator who really doesn't know what he's doing, and that makes it a feminist film also because uh, she, you begin to think without the film saying so, how come she's not the senator and this guy doesn't know anything? She she, she <laughs> walks him through uh, the steps of how to write a bill and how to get it passed and all the ins and outs and all the corruption. and right. and. Um, you know, she gives a lot of the exposition, and, and uh, so the film tells you how our system works, and then it shows you. But it's also about one man against the system, which is mm-hmm. what appealed to me from the beginning about Capra, and it does to a lot of people, is uh, w- one man can make a difference fighting the system. It takes him a while to, to become educated, but he, he does uh, eventually rally and um, stand up for his ideals. Wow, well said. Yeah, Joseph, you pretty much stole my thunder. I had some uh, some ideas written down here and, and just some other things popping into my head about the answer to this question. But I'll kind of riff on what you said as well. And for my money, Mr. Smith matters because even though it can play as overly sentimental, corny, naive, maybe wildly outdated, uh, you know, based on, on some opinions, it was made with true heart. It was made with sincerity and, and genuine good intentions by Frank Capra and company. And I think this genuineness, this honesty of emotion is felt in virtually every frame. I think it also matters because it's one of the very few American films, to me anyway, that that feels unabashedly patriotic. It's a political movie that isn't cynical or snarky or ironic. To me, this is kind of the textbook definition of a feel-good picture, one that 
put you through the emotional ringer and make its protagonists particularly suffer in order to achieve those good feelings honestly. It certainly has great feeling and heart. And Capra was an immigrant from Sicily, and he loved America. He was, he was truly patriotic and uh, later felt betrayed by his country when he was uh, regarded as disloyal during the blacklist period, uh, which was shattering for him and, and part of the craziness of the blacklist. And one reason that happened was that the writer of Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Sidney Bugman, was a member of the Communist Party when he wrote the film, which is a very interesting uh, very interesting twist, and Capra mm -hmm. worked with a lot of left-wing writers, and some liberals, and some conservatives, and some communists, and, and he got in trouble, guilt by association, but um, uh, Bugman felt Capra never really understood what Mr. Smith was about, and they had a rather bitter argument about that. And um, it, so, what I found about Capra was that he was a strange mixture of, he was great with actors, I think Jimmy Stewart has never been better, and Gene Arthur, and. He, Capra loved actors and got tremendous, uh, truthful, deep performances from them. Um, but the ideas behind his films, he didn't always actually agree with them intellectually. Uh, he was rather confused, for one thing. But he was very conservative. He was anti-Roosevelt. Um, that would surprise a lot of people because people think of him as a New Deal filmmaker, but he didn't like the New Deal. Mm. But he was he was sort of the New Deal uh, guy uh, in films because he made Mr. Deeds and Mr. Smith, and but the reason was that his writers were liberals and, and left wingers, and uh, he was also responding to the mood of the times. I found an interview in 1932 where he said the public is going to buy films that are about the issues of the current uh, crisis, you know, the depression, uh -huh. and so he gave them what they wanted to some extent. But he actually disagreed with some of the ideas in the films. Films and uh, amazing. Uh, I also found out Mr. Uh, so, so he's a strange mixture of sincerity and, and uh, phoniness in a way. Um, and, and Mr. Smith is, is a, it's not just a simple rah, rah, rah film. It is very patriotic in the most profound way because it sort of expresses, I mean, it expresses American ideals of freedom of speech and uh, democracy in a very uh, powerful, dramatic way. But it also shows most of Congress is corrupt and the system is very corrupt and it's a very dark film in some ways. In, in the middle, well, about two-thirds of the way through, Mr. Smith uh, wants to quit and go home, and he, t he talks about the whole rotten show of American ideals. Those were lines Capra himself wrote, I found Interesting. out. Interesting. Um, he, he's in despair, and Jean Arthur rallies him, which I always find to be a, mo a moving scene. She gives him a pep talk about um, you know, how he believed in our country, and uh, he, right. uh, little, little kids believe in our country, and he should uh, not quit, you know, and, and uh, that's a good good message. It's corny, but it's it's true. Um, but, you know, it's it's a dark film, and it was controversial in its day, too. A lot of people were angry about it, and we can talk about that. Yeah, these are all excellent points. I appreciate your input. In my opinion, it stood the test of time based on the bravura performance of James Stewart. I mean, the sheer power of its knockout extended cast, the strong female lead, courtesy of Gene Arthur, as you, as you uh, mentioned there, the emotionally propagandistic power of Capra's visuals and montages to me as another strength here. And, and the fact that it's one of the extremely rare movies that shows how our system of government and the passing of laws works, a system that has mm -hmm. pretty much remained unchanged. I think it also remains timeless, Joseph, because it refuses to date itself. So Smith's home state is not named. 
We don't hear any mention of Republicans or Democrats. There are no scatological references to the impending Second World War, the rise of Nazism, the recent Great Depression, or other political or sociocultural uh, issues or events, which is pretty interesting. So it kind of remains evergreen in that way, too. And I think, uh, as you said, too, it continues to resonate because 21st century viewers— and let's face it, that's where we are now. I think we all know how corrupt the world can be today. And nowadays, we constantly hear about dishonest and self-serving, unethical politicians and leaders. And many of us want to believe that each of us can exercise political power to stand up against you know, political injustices and affect change, even if it's only at the ballot box or maybe by writing a letter to a congressman or demonstrating in a protest or something like that. But Jefferson Smith, the character, to me, continues to stand as kind of this patron saint of the idealistic everyman and every woman. Yeah, um, the film does not use the words Democrat or Republican very carefully, I think, because, you know, if it did that, it might alienate half the audience. That's True. the way Hollywood used to think. But actually, uh, you can tell that Smith and his fellow senator, Claude Rains, are Democrats because of where they sit. From the vantage point of the president pro tem of the mm. Senate, who's the vice president of the United States, Harry, Harry Carey plays the role. They sit on his right side, which means they're Democrats. That was consistent back in 1939, I assume? Yeah, and it's true now, and it was true then, and that's traditional. And so they're Democrats. It's never said in the film. Uh, but everybody else in Congress, well, just about almost, even Claude Rains is, is a fascinating character. He's uh, a corrupt senator who uh, Smith at first uh, idealizes, and then he realizes he's, he's uh, sold out. And he's as Capra said, the good man who is sold out. And I think Capra actually feels as close to Claude Rains personally as he does to Jimmy Stewart's character, who's the naive idealist. And um, one of my students made a really good point that changed my view of this film to some extent, that, well, you know, I looked at Stewart's character as this wonderful idealistic guy. It's actually kind of shocking how little he knows about government. He becomes a senator. It's sort of, you know, a comical point that he's appointed as a stooge for this corrupt political machine. He doesn't know it, and he gradually wises up with Gene Arthur's help. But he doesn't even know anything about our government, and and that's kind of appalling. No, but he seems to be a built-in politician because uh, from out of nowhere comes this oratorial skill. Well, he's wonderful. Yeah, I mean, he rises to the occasion, and it's Capra's tribute in a way to the innate power of what they called the common man, although as Capra said, he didn't like that term because he thought he said he wasn't common, he was a hell of a guy. But um, it is actually appalling, too, that Jefferson Smith doesn't know that the state is run by Edward Arnold's character, who's a powerful uh, media tycoon, among other things. He's kind of like uh, Rupert Murdoch or somebody of that sort, or William Randolph first. Yeah, that's naivete right there. But... Um, in an expository way, as you say, Gene Arthur walks us through every stage of the system. It's very educational. The script is a great script, and Capra admitted to me it was probably the best script he ever had. Um, it's a wonderfully written script, but I also found out the film is plagiarized from a play. And right? um, I found this out through a roundabout way. That I found an article in Capra's papers that Columbia, right before the film was released, discovered the film had a lot of similarities to Maxwell Anderson's play, Both Your Houses. And so they bought the rights shortly before the film came out to protect themselves. And so I went and read the play belatedly, and I was kind of stunned because it's the same story. And the only Oscar given to Mr. Smith, ironically, was for original story to Lewis R. Foster. 
and Foster didn't have much of a career. He did get an Oscar nomination for The More the Merrier, the um, George Stevens film, but he was mainly a B-movie B writer and director, but um, I'm not blaming Buckman or Capra for plagiarism, but you have to wonder about did Foster deserve his Oscar um, because it really is ripped off from this Maxwell Anderson play. And there's also a Maxwell Anderson film that Columbia made called Washington Merry-Go-Round in 1932 that has certain things that are borrowed from Mr. Smith, such as the scene, you know, we all remember the great scene where Smith goes to the Lincoln Memorial for inspiration. Well, that's in Washington Merry-Go-Round. And uh, Washington Merry-Go-Round is kind of similar to the play Both Your Houses. So Maxwell Anderson is kind of the author of this uh, story. So I'd recommend people read that obscure play, and it's quite interesting. Um, Capra puts this happy ending on it, and Sidney Buckman said he always walked out two minutes before the film ended because he couldn't stand the ending of the film that was so... Uh, unbelievable to him that it, the way it's resolved is that Claude Rains tries to commit suicide on the floor of the Senate, or actually in, in the cloakroom, and uh, that's pretty absurd. And uh, he runs in there and he screams uh, that he's guilty and uh, impeach me and or expel me, he says, and, and Stewart is vindicated. But it happens very fast, and Capra originally shot a whole ending in which um, Stewart goes back to his hometown and has a parade, and you can see that in the trailer. And he cut that out because it was anticlimactic. Wow. But one way Capper makes his happy endings work, they're often, his happy endings seem sort of forced. Um, uh, he, he makes them go by so fast you don't think about it. <laughs> right. And that's, if you look at Mr. Smith, it's very rushed at the end. But it, we kind of wanted the guy to succeed. But if you look at it from Senator um, <clears throat> Payne's point of view, uh, Claude Rains, it's a tragedy, really. I mean, the man is destroyed and he's suicidal and... You know, it depends on who you're pointing the camera at. I would agree, Jimmy Stewart gives such a great performance. And one thing in my Capra book that I, you know, there's always something you can't figure out how to deal with. And one thing in the, I could never figure out how to describe Jimmy Stewart's performance or analyze it. Normally I can do that with acting, and I did that pretty well with Gene Arthur, but I just couldn't think of how to write about Stewart. And then I read a quote from Orson Welles, and he said, Jimmy Stewart's performance in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington is beyond praise. So I thought, okay, that's the answer. He, he transcends acting. Capra gave a speech. Uh, I wrote a tribute to Stewart for the American Film Institute, and Capra came on the show and, and did a speech that Lee Strasberg said was the best definition of film acting. He said there's a, a level of acting in which um, the actor disappears, and it's just... The, the character on the screen it becomes the actor becomes the character and, and you're not aware of acting and, and he said Jimmy Stewart can do that better than anybody else and I think that's what happens with Stewart Stewart is so deeply into that performance and when I interviewed him one answer he gave he wasn't the most articulate guy about his his work but he pointed out that Capper had five cameras going a lot of times in the Senate scenes and he re, he said I didn't really know where the camera was and he said in a way that helped him because he wasn't conscious of acting for the camera. You know, he was just doing his scenes. And so Capra had all these methods of uh, kind of relaxing actors or getting them uh, to just be themselves. And that's that's an example of that. Wow. Wow. Fascinating recollections and anecdotes there. I really appreciate you taking an even deeper dive here and being, uh, you know, kind of a first pan, first, I, I should say, firsthand uh, accounting of, uh, of of what the director and the star of this movie had to say about it. So thank you for sharing those memories. I want to dig into the next question here, which is, Joseph, what do you what ways do you think Mr. Smith Goes to Washington was influential on cinema 
or popular culture or set trends in any way? Well, it, uh, you know, I can't think of too many other films that have been that on that level of dealing with our political system because, I mean, there are political films, one kind or another, but a lot of times uh, American films tend to shy away from the realities. Uh, Advice and Consent is a good film about how the government works, you know, gets into the nitty-gritty. And okay. um, a lot of filmmakers love Capra, you know, they're inspired by him in one shape or another. But, you know, often when people use the word Capra-esque, they're referring to uh, It's Wonderful Life, you know, with angels and that kind of thing. And I think that there's another kind of Capra-esque, which is the gritty uh, triumph over adversity uh, uh, stories like he does with Mr. Smith and some other films, Mr. Deeds. Sure, Goes to Town, meet John but, Doe. Uh, meet, meet John Doe. You know, where, to me, I, I respond very uh, viscerally and uh, to the mood swings of the Capra characters because I kind of share that, and Capra was like that himself, that as uh, I wrote a line for Jimmy Stewart on our Capra show that I wrote for the AFI that he, he has as many highs and lows in his films as a roller coaster, he, and he makes you earn those happy endings by taking it very low and then he takes it very high and Truffaut said that Capra was a great healer because he could he, he said I've often cried during the uh, the comical moments of Capra's films you know Capra can make you laugh and cry very quickly no question. Uh, go from one to another in a very believable way like real life is full of all those highs and lows and Mr. Smith conveys that even if the ending is rather um, Fanciful, um, you know. I should mention now. How, really interesting question: How could a communist write such a patriotic film? Uh, because pe people often, you know, especially in the blacklist period, Capra informed on Sidney Bugman. This was one of the major discoveries I made for my book. Was that he, when his loyalty was questioned, he was working for a Defense Department think tank in 1951, and they questioned his loyalty to his country, which was really unfair because he was a great patriot and he worked in World War II on the Why We Fight series, etc. But he had associated, uh, some of the charges against him were ridiculous, like in World War II you were um, getting information from the Russians and you were, you were uh, favorable to the Russians. Well, they were our allies, that's, you know. But after the war that was suspect, it's kind of yeah. crazy. But uh, the, charge, the charge that had some substance was you associated with many left-wing writers now, of course, that's guilt by association, and it shouldn't be guilt at all, because in our country, the First Amendment guarantees your right to be a communist or fascist or whatever you want to be, Democrat, Republican, that's the essence of the First Amendment. But in the blacklist era, having worked with communists uh, made you suspect, even if you were a, a Republican like Capra was. So he panicked, and he uh, wrote a document that I found in which he turned in seven people he had worked with, wow. including... Sidney Buckman, Michael Wilson, who worked on It's a Wonderful Life, um, uh, uh, Hugo Butler, and uh, Ian McClellan Hunter, and, and some other people, and maligned them and said they were communists. And so he's 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 um, turning in uh, the writer of his best film, and even sadder, uh, almost, in 1966, Capra was giving a speech at a college, and he kind of disowned Mr. Smith because he said... Uh, with the Vietnam War going on, I wouldn't make a film like this because you don't want to knock your country when it's bleeding, he said, you know. So he, he felt the need to kind of disown his best film, and maybe that's why he would say It's Wonderful Life was his best film, because even though it has some political overtones, it it's, uh, resolves its story through supernatural fantasy, and to me that's a cop-out. Um, 
And some of the writers of that film were, were blacklisted, too. These are amazing recollections of the movie, uh, of course, based on your own research that you meticulously gathered for your books, I assume. But this question of how the film might have been influential on movies or popular culture set trends, I did a little digging. I, I'm no expert, so I wanted to kind of, I was curious about the answer to this. I found that it's been cited as one of the first examples of a conspiracy theory film in which like moviegoers are given the notion that there may be powerful machinations influencing the way the country is run. So in this case, Mr. Smith goes to Washington. It suggests that graft and corruption may be prevalent in the U.S. government. There were films in the 70s, and, and they used the word paranoid thrillers. And again, the word paranoid is a kind of loaded word, too, because it's, it's a... Um, it's a psychological uh, disorder. Uh, but as William Burroughs said, a paranoid is a guy who just found out what's going on. You know? <laughs> uh, so in other words, if you find out the government is corrupt, that's, that's what happens to Jimmy Stewart in the film. He's, he believes what he reads in, in the, on the, carved into monuments and, and, and the textbooks, and then he finds out you know, people are corrupt. And I mean, today it's no uh, surprise it's not shouldn't be a shock or a paranoid conspiracy theory to realize that Congress is deeply corrupt. You know, Congress is, uh, you know, uh, lobbyists pay vast amounts of money to congressmen to pass laws that the public doesn't want, and mm -hmm. we see this all the time. So um, if, if people think that, the gov you know, the government is run by the principles of the Constitution, they often find out that the Constitution is ignored and violated all the time. And that's that's something we should fight against, as Buckman said. And that's what's good about the film is that it shows a guy who is not accepting this state of affairs, and he doesn't think it should be the case. And, and so it's it's an inspirational film in that regard. And but it shows the great difficulty in fighting the system. They really try to destroy this. Absolutely. Guy. So I think you're right. It, it is in a way it's a precursor of, uh, for example, Oliver Stone's JFK, which is a very controversial film. The public loved it, but it got attacked a lot in the media. And, People use the phrase conspiracy theory, but he was reading my Capra book when he was promoting right? JFK. And he, uh, if, you, if you look at JFK, it's a very Capra-esque film. And, and uh, the way he portrays Kevin Costner's character, especially in the courtroom scenes, is very inspired by Mr. Smith Goes yeah, to Washington. Yeah, I can see that now. One, one guy against the system, you know? And the other thing uh, I, I would say is in terms of setting a trend, I mean, uh, although it's a bit dubious in terms of that characterization, but... I think we can agree. I mean, this is the movie that kind of made Jimmy Stewart a star in the sense of it, it establishes him as this A-list breakout star and one of the finest film actors of his or any generation. I, I realize he'd been in uh, smaller parts before and you can't take it with you. And same year, he's got Destry Rides Again and some other things. But this is really the movie that put him on the map. Yeah, it's it's the film that established him. He, he was, I think, as Andrew Serris said, the greatest actor personality in American cinema he had such a range, you know, he could fit into the worlds of so, so many great filmmakers who were disparate, like mm -hmm. Hitchcock and Anthony Mann and Lubitsch and Capra, and you can name other ones. And uh, so he, he's very good at playing neurotic, disturbed characters, and then he can play the more innocent character. And, uh, you know, Mr. Smith kind of takes him through the gamut of all those emotions. And but it did make him a, a huge star. He didn't get the Oscar that year. It was 1939, of course. <laughs> that was the year of Gone, <laughs> yeah. with the, Gone with the Wind, you know. So, so they gave him a kind of makeup Oscar. Uh, for, Philadelphia uh, Story, uh, right? Uh, Philadelphia Story in 1940, which, you know, was a pretty good performance, but nothing near Mr. Smith. And Jean Arthur kind of teased him when she talked to me. I knew her well, and 
She said Jimmy Stewart was so aware that he was playing the performance of his lifetime that he would leave at 5 a.m. to go to the studio and drive five miles an hour so he didn't get hit by a car. <laughs> I read that recently. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, good story. Joseph, what do you think is the moral to the story here? What themes or messages are explored in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington that you want to point out? You know, there's a strong message that one person can make a difference and we shouldn't lie down and, and let people roll over us, uh, you know. And, and the, you know, a key scene in the film is when uh, Stuart uh, confronts Claude Rains's character about the fact that Rains is uh, corrupt and he's working with this political boss who's uh, p- putting through this pork barreling bill to, you know, to, to make money for himself and Rains is involved in this and Stuart is deeply uh, disillusioned and that's a big part of Capra's films is when the hero gets disillusioned and has mm-hmm. and becomes despondent and then has to fight back. And Rains says, uh, Capra said to me, he said, always give your villains the best... L- arguments you can think of, you know, and that's a good argument, a good way to look at it. So Rain says, well, I, I, 30 years ago I was you and I had to make a decision. Do I want to stay in the Senate and, and, and do some good or, or do I want to get, you know, voted out? And so he said, I compromised. He said, you have to compromise. You have to leave your uh, ideals right. at the door like you do your rubbers, he says. And it's, it's very disillusioning, but it, there's a certain truth to that, unfortunately, that that's the way Congress often works is people uh, sell out on certain issues so they can get their victories on other issues. And that's just the way the world works. And, and this film is very honest in admitting that. And I think the honesty, the bracing honesty of the film is, is uh, powerful. And then the fact that the guy can get his uh, energy up and his idealism fired up with the help of Gene Arthur's character, who, who really is a... a, a uh, powerful woman and strong woman and Capra's films are very good in depicting strong women in the, especially in the 30s. Absolutely. As far as other themes, I think we can agree, right? Lost causes are the only causes worth fighting for that's mentioned in the movie a few times. That's that's a great thing. I love that. The only cause mm-hmm. uh, worth fighting for is the lost cause. And, and Capra got that from Miles Connolly who wrote a book called Mr. Blue in 1928. It's a novel about a kind of a messianic, uh, innocent character, and um, he, he talks about the lost cause, and so Capra borrowed some of those ideas from Connolly. And, and that is a very moving thing because, you know, uh, even if you're going to go down in defeat, you should fight for your cause, and that's something we should mm-hmm. all remember, you know. Yeah, very inspirational message. Mm-hmm. Also, to me, uh, another one that stands out is the maturation, uh, the transitioning from childhood into adulthood, but without losing the enthusiasm and idealism of youth. So we see how Smith has this boyish innocence and childlike naivete about him and how he's associated with the boys' camp and the youngsters who follow and who champion him. And by the end of the film, he kind of outgrows his aw shucks simplicity to some extent and, and, and that immaturity as a politician by choosing to stand up and above those who used to tower above him figuratively and literally. And he mm. uses an eloquent, like adult voice in the last act and in, in that filibustering scene that contrasts with how he spoke and carried himself earlier in the movie to some extent. Mm. And then consider how... Capra continually frames Jimmy Stewart, often as lower in stature and subservient and smaller than his fellow politicians, and Taylor in particular, throughout the film, until Smith decides to fight back at the end, where suddenly he's literally looming larger in the frame and height and and, and in respect as well. So I think that that transition from childhood into adulthood, but maintaining that, that kind of boyish or childish kind of enthusiasm 
is important here. Yeah, that's a big theme in the film, and, and that connects with the idealism, innocence theme. One last theme I wanted to uh, to just address here is idealism versus cynicism. So to me, it's easy to chuckle at the unintended corniness built into this film, like, you know, the flag-waving romanticism, the unabashed moral righteousness. Uh, I like these concepts and, and ideals. It's just, you know, I mean, in a movie that's 80 years old, uh, sometimes it can be a little hard to take it seriously. But it's easier to gravitate to today's more widely accepted pessimism and skepticism and sarcasm, which are continually pitted against Smith's optimism in the movie, even in the form of Gene Arthur, for example, and some of the other journalists. But yet, it to me, it's hard to be unmoved by Smith's earnestness and his simple values, which make people feel nostalgic for a bygone era and a, a bygone time and mindset. Mm-hmm. So... Fortunately, Smith's idealism is balanced by the cynicism that we see in Clarissa and in Diz, the reporter. And I think that the fact that the ending is ambiguous, there's no clear victory in the sense of, hey, we don't even know if Taylor's been truly defeated. And even if he was, someone else would fill in his place. You know, I mean, it, it ends so quickly and abruptly, as you said. All of these elements point to, okay, for those people, so those naysayers who say this is Capricorn. And it just, you know, it's it's hopelessly dated, et cetera. I think those elements are balanced pretty well by there is some cynicism and pessimism in the movie. Yeah, I, I don't mind uh, what some people consider sentimentality in Capra. I think it's actually, it really works well. And I'm very moved by his earnestness. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what, you know, he doesn't play it with tongue in cheek like some actors might do to show that they're hip or above the character or whatever. And, and uh, Capra is not above the character. He loves the the guy's uh, uh, boyish earnestness and patriotism. and uh, But he, he also makes fun of it. There's a kind of a strain in Capra that took me a while to understand when I first got into him, that he has wise guys and cynics all through his work. Uh, like Gene Arthur is quite cynical. Diz Moore is cynical. And in other films, characters like Ned Sparks and, and character actors like that are often making sarcastic, cynical remarks. And then, it, like, they're making fun of the hero for being naive. And at first that sort of jarred me, but I realized that Capra had two sides in him. He was, that's why when I wrote my biography, it it was such a fascinating, uh, arduous job, seven-year work, uh, including a four-year legal battle to get the book out, that Capra was Dostoevskian kind of figure. He was a very complex man, and he had, as I say, he didn't really believe, you know, consciously in the values of some of what he was saying on film, but he could tap into the feeling of being a common man, a, a poor guy, a working man, because he had lived through that, but it embittered him. And um, uh, President Kennedy once quoted Somerset Maugham, who said, suffering does not ennoble, it embitters. And mm. some people are ennobled by suffering, but in Capra's case, it embittered him. And he was very angry at being treated like a nothing or, or uh, treated with um, bigotry as an immigrant. And he wanted to show people and he he was full of um, rage and he also felt I made it, you know, despite my humble beginnings and I became, Capra became very wealthy. Uh, He was embarrassed by that and wouldn't even admit the truth, but um, he became wealthy promoting the common man and there's a a lot of contradictions in this. And so I I spent years exploring this and and so that's built into the films and that's one reason the films work, I think. And if, uh, if it was all sentimentality or, or the guy being sentimental, sentimentality means false emotion, but sentiment is different. I mean, honest sentiment is good. 
But one way Capra makes that palatable or work is to juxtapose it with cynics uh, making fun of it, and then Jane Arthur's character is moved, despite herself, by the honesty of this man and the sincerity of this man, and she lets out her kind of inner feelings that she's been suppressing, and that's very powerful, too. And sure. so um, Mr. Smith is a dark film, but Mr. Smith is somewhat more realistic. They both have endings that are kind of fantastical, but the one in Wonderful Life is supernatural. And Capra kind of, one, one effect it had on him, Mr. Smith was so controversial, got attacked by a lot of politicians and press people, even though the public loved it and, and some reviewers loved it. Um, he became more timid after that. He he made Meet John Doe, which is a fairly gutsy film, but that sort of cops out at the end. And after the war, he stopped making uh, films that were really uh, about our political system or realistic films. He made fantasy films or, or uh, kind of retreads of his old movies. And he really collapsed as an artist after the war. And uh, so Mr. Smith is sort of the high point of his career. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Uh, in, in my opinion at all. Right. You know, Wonderful Life has a lot of qualities, but it's not as good as Mr. Smith. I think that's the apogee of Capra's work. And Jimmy Stewart had a good comment to me. He said, you know, I think one reason Capra had trouble was that he left Columbia, that he said it was a good setup, even though he was fighting with Harry Cohn, the head of Columbia, that um, Capra thrived in, in, in the major studio system. And Capra kept thinking, I want to be independent, and that's a panacea, and it proved not to be a panacea. And Stewart said that was the root of Capra's problems, and that's part of the root. Yeah. The other is political, that he betrayed his own principles after his adopted country betrayed him, and he felt kicked in the face by his country, and then he retaliated, blamed his writers. Basically, he kind of implicitly uh, said, my writers made me do it, you know, yeah. and don't blame me. Wow. And so no... He wouldn't. He actually said, "I will not work with liberal writers anymore." And if you don't work with liberal writers, that really cuts off about ninety-five percent of Hollywood. Oh, this is fascinating stuff, Joseph. So, my next question is: Who do you think Mr. Smith goes to Washington appealed to? Let's say back in thirty-nine, and who do you think it appeals to today? And if that appeal has changed, what does that say about the film's impact, influence, and legacy? Well, just I was just thinking when you said this, there was an article in the 70s in a magazine. They, they interviewed a lot of politicians uh, in the United States and other countries about Capra. And uh, a lot of politicians said they were inspired to get into politics because of Capra. Amazing. And I remember two of the people who, who said they were inspired by him were Jerry Brown, the former governor of California, and, and uh, Nasser, the president of Egypt. And, you know, I mean, that's the range of kind of people who love Capra. And... Uh, you know, it doesn't, you know, in other words, when you see Mr. Smith, uh, you know, it, it wises you up about this is a tough business. Uh, you better be prepared for uh, being maligned and attacked, et cetera. But it's inspiring, too, because it says one man can really prevail if, if you have honesty and integrity and fight for your, your beliefs. And uh, so that appeals to politicians. Who, who it appealed to in 39? Well, some of the reviewers uh, recognized uh, those qualities, and Jimmy Stewart's performance was universally acclaimed. I think Jean Arthur never got as much acclaim as she deserved because, you know, if you look at the film again, uh, I began noticing that for the first hour or so, she carries the film. She does most of the talking. That's a good point, yeah. As much. She says an awful lot, and she's the one who, you know, it's, it's a very educational film. If you showed it to somebody, I'm going to show it to a class on films about American history, Somebody who knows nothing about 
our system, for example, you could you could figure it out from watching that film because she says, okay, here's how first you introduce a bill, first you have to write the bill, and this is what you say, and this is how you introduce it, and this is how you get it passed, and this is these are the roadblocks, and you know, she she goes through the whole thing, and it it's entertaining, it's so well written, and also uh, dramatically works because she has to inform this ignorant guy about this, and uh, but along the way it gives you a, a, a you know a primer on our our country and. But it's not simplistic. It's it's actually very realistic and honest and accurate, and um, so a lot of the reviewers understood that. And then uh, I think the public loved it, and it did very well at the box office. However, it was a very expensive film, so it didn't make a lot of money for Columbia, and it tied Capra up for a while. And uh, you know, so it was not one of his biggest uh, profit-making films. I, I got the profit figures from Columbia from a source at Columbia. The film. Had rentals of three million eight hundred sixty thousand eight hundred eight dollars through nineteen eighty five. That's when I got the figures, which was higher than Mr. Deeds and lower than You Can't Take It With You. Hmm. But the negative cost was relatively high. Uh, it was about two million. Wow. Negative. It, it, it earned only a small profit with net proceeds, which are rentals less negative cost and distribution expenses, totaling only $168,501. Quite a far cry from what Wikipedia is reporting, so I'm glad you you, uh, cleared that up. Capra said things like in 1982, he told the Washington Post, he said, I'm the poorest director you'll ever find. And actually, he had $5 million, I found out. I I, uh, interviewed his accountant, who was a great source, and I got his bank records. He didn't want to admit he'd become a millionaire defending the common man, and there's a contradiction there. He he felt sort of guilty about that. I mean, one of the things that made Capra an engaging human being was that he had complex feelings about his success and sure. his failures and his selling out, and uh, he had a conscience, he had guilt about it, and he, he covered up his guilt about informing for a long time. But then he gave his papers to uh, a university, Wesleyan, uh, I, I saw that as a kind of subconscious or conscious act of confession to give the evidence to a university right. for scholars to find. And uh, so I come along and then I discover this and I did further research and dug into it and uh, tell the story. And then people tried to stop me from doing it. But uh, Ilya Kazan is a good contrast to Capra because he um, he informed on people and he took a lot of heat for That's it. Right. But he was very open about it. He took an ad out in the New York Times and he testified publicly. And so people uh, really um, attacked him, and he became controversial. Capra did not do that. He he hid his evidence of his informing, um, but it was it was in the papers that he finally released, and so I was able to get the whole story. But it's it's a tragic, very sad story that this man who believed in America, and and our Constitution, and and uh, upholds it so much, and Mr. Smith would betray the First Amendment. I want to ask you what elements from this movie have aged well, in your opinion, and what elements maybe are showing some wrinkles 80 years later. Well, I, I don't worry about films being dated, so to speak. I mean, some films just, you look back and gee, you think that wasn't really very good. Maybe I liked it back then. But I think films change. I was just telling my students, they change as you change. But the film itself, of course, never changes unless it does. But... Um, uh, we change, you know, we see different things in films, uh, you know, like when you're 20, you see different things from when you're 40 or 60. Um, so I don't mind if a film is, quote, dated, unquote, because uh, what's wrong with that? You know, it was made in 1939, just like a film made today will seem dated in 80 years or whatever. 
And, and there's something I like about that quality because one reason I like films is they're sort of time machines where you can travel back in time to the world of 1939 and yeah. you see it through their eyes. And you can, it's a contemporary film, so you can see images of, I mean, it's a story film, it's made up, but you can see, it's a semi-documentary in a way of about our country in Washington, D.C., and you can see uh, uh, a very good recreation of the, of the Senate and... Uh, uh, you can see the actual buildings and, and Lincoln Memorial, and then you can see people behaving the way people behaved back then, and they had the attitudes of people back then. But in some ways, it was advanced. I think uh, the view of women was advanced from... I mean, on the other hand, it was a period when women were dominant in American films, as Molly Haskell writes in her great book, From Reverence to Rape. It's yeah. about women in American films. <clears throat> the 30s was a period in which women dominated as stars because... Um, Back then, it was a habit audience, and the whole family would go to see a film, and the woman would often make the decision about what film they're going to see. And so uh, there were so many great female stars, Greta Garbo, Barbara Stanwyck, Catherine Hepburn, Joan Crawford, Rosalind Russell, Jean Arthur, and we could go on and on, you know. And, and so they made films that were vehicles for these women, and today there are relatively few movies made around women because the target audience now is adolescent males, you know, 12 to 24 yeah, and they're not particularly interested in mature women's point of view. Uh, so this film, uh, in a way, seems ahead of its time uh, because it was more progressive mm -hmm. than most films made at the time in terms of politics and, and women's issues. Does anything stand out though? Is is kind of dated to you, or, or like a real kind of fossil of its time, perhaps that uh, doesn't stand up so well? Well, you know, I love it so much. I have very few reservations, except I mean, there are some things that are sort of, as as I say with Capra, that are contradictory and incoherent uh, in his political point of view. Uh, you know, when Gene Arthur says to him at the Lincoln Memorial, "What we need is plain old everyday rightness," or something like that. That sounds kind of strange. It sounds like a kind of um, reactionary thing to say, but the scene itself is very moving where she's bucking up his his uh, courage and it's done in silhouette. It's very beautifully shot and directed. And uh, The ending is, is a problem and I could recognize that now. It didn't bother me for a long time and now I can see the phoniness of the ending that it's really a deus ex machina for the, you, you create this situation which the guy paints himself into a corner he gives this great speech and, and his uh, from back home they send all these telegrams against him you know the the machine has, has gotten people to uh, turn against him and the press is against him but his fellow senators are moved by what he's saying and then he collapses on the floor of the senate it's sort of like he dies almost and then the senator runs out senior senator runs out and says expel me I'm, I'm the guilty one that's a deus ex machina like in the Greek tragedies. So in a sense, the real ending of Mr. Smith is that the, this idealistic crusade fails and he collapses on the floor of the Senate and everybody turns against him. That's a very bleak ending. That's the way the uh, play ends, both your houses that they stole it from. Um, but, you know, movies, Capra himself wrote in 1951 in a government document that the happy ending is uh, an American characteristic, he said. We have this obsession with happy endings in our country. In Europe, they're not as obsessed with that. Often European films have a darker ending. Orson Welles pointed out that even a 30-second, well, let's say a 30-second or a 60-second commercial in America has a happy ending. You know, like <laughs> starts out with a guy at a party, meets a beautiful woman, and then he has bad breath, and she, you know, makes a face, and then he goes home and gets Listerine, and then he 
comes back and he meets a beautiful woman. Happy ending. Uh, Orson Welles, the gift that keeps on giving. Yeah, <laughs> funny. Welles said another thing. He said, uh, this applies to Mr. Smith pretty well. Um, he said, if you want a happy ending, that depends, of course, on where you stop your story. If you stop Mr. Smith when he collapses on the floor of the house, that would be a really devastating film and might not be embraced by the public as much as it is today. It's, it's a fun, cute ending, but it works because Capper makes it work because he shoots it yep. so fast and he that's right yeah, and it's so uh, amusing but you don't think about it but when you reflect on it this is a pretty absurd ending actually sure but to me it's above criticism because again it's just so masterfully done and it's just so abrupt that uh it leaves you feeling good this is a birthday celebration after all 80th birthday of uh mr smith goes to washington this year to me birthdays are about presents yes but i think it's the fans who continue to get the gifts so joseph what is this film's greatest gift to viewers what do you think? I suppose the love of what our country really stands for, and uh, uh, we have a great constitution. And uh, ben, when when the constitution was written, a woman asked Benjamin Franklin, uh, "What kind of a uh, country have you created here?" And he said, "A republic, if you can keep it." You know, we have kind of a new blacklist in America. Certain people, Woody Allen, Roman Polanski, are on the blacklist, and and uh, we had a blacklist in the '40s and '50s in Capra informed and, and Sidney Bugman and other writers and um, but they had a right to their opinion and that's part of what makes America special supposedly is that you have a right to express yourself and in other countries you can't but it is a risky thing to do even today and it was risky in 1939 and that's what the film is about Franklin D. Roosevelt showed Mr. Smith in 1940 when he was formulating the Lend-Lease policy he did that on a cruise on a government boat and he had a bunch of Navy guys with him and I found a letter that one of them wrote to Capra and he said the president showed the film he had never seen it and afterwards he was so stirred that he gave a little speech to all the Navy uh, uh, personnel about our country and what it stands for and how important it is to fight for your principles and the principles of the Constitution and I, I think that's what I take away from that film and there's nobody who embodies that better than James Stewart who gives one of the all-time great performances of any film actor, I think, uh, in that film. No question. He, he represents the American principle, principle uh, and Gene Arthur, too. Um, they stand for what our country believes in, and, and uh, it means a lot to me as an individual, and I think it does to a lot of viewers. Yeah, well said. I had some thoughts here in terms of greatest gifts. I tried thinking about this, and I think my answer is trifold. We can agree. Jimmy Stewart's performance, this is arguably his best. It's particularly memorable for how it shows like a gradual transformation from like a folksy young innocent to a beaten down but roused patriot. And thanks to his impeccable ability to display a wide array of believable emotions, he really sells it so well. And we feel what Smith feels, and that's a testament to the power of Stewart's acting and Capra's direction. Secondly, it's a movie that makes it feel acceptable to be patriotic. And that can sound kind of really outdated and corny today, but it just feels good. So when you think of movies like Yankee Doodle Dandy or Young Mr. Lincoln or Sergeant York and a few others yeah. from Hollywood's golden era, this movie celebrates Americana in the best that this country has to offer. Yeah. And lastly, we barely touched on this, but I, I, this is an important point. Another gift that just keeps on giving is the stellar extended cast. Now, this is one of the deepest rosters ever assembled. Oh, yeah. You got, as you said, Gene Arthur, Claude Rains, yeah. Edward Arnold, Harry Carey, Thomas Mitchell, Guy Kibbe, 
Beulah Bondi, Eugene Pallet, H.B. Uh, Warner, William Demarest, Porter Hall. You even have like Jack Carson in this tiny little role. What an embarrassment yeah. of riches, right? Capra was so great with uh, supporting actors. And when I wrote the AFI Salute to Capra, we did a, a montage of uh, small parts in his films. And, and there's an old British saying, there are no small parts, uh, only small actors. In other words, uh, in, in England, they have a tradition, great actors will play small parts. In America, people tend to think it's a come down. But Capra, what he said, and I think this is very stirring and part of the key to why he's a good director, is that he said, I treat every actor as a star, no matter how small the part. If he has a one-minute part, I treat him like a star. And the actors felt that, and he always gave them great business and great lines of dialogue. And he, he shaped little bits, part, bit parts, so that the person really comes alive, even if he only has a, a brief time to do that. And those people you mentioned all shine in this film. Uh, so, and, But they had a great roster of people like that in Hollywood in that period. Mm. And Thomas Mitchell probably had the greatest year of any actor in 1939. Oh, amazing when gone, you think gone about gone it. Gone with the Mr. Smith. Yep. He won the Oscar for Stagecoach. In the That's right. The he was in um, <laughs> The Hunchback of Notre Dame and also Only Angels Have Wings. In Incredible. Wonder, imagine. What a year. Yeah, it's full of riches in terms of uh, the acting and the... Uh, it just has it all. I mean, it's one of the great masterpieces. And uh, uh, But Jimmy Stewart's performance, and you said it very well, and, and I, I really had trouble saying it in my book because it's sometimes things are beyond praise, as Orson Welles said. How do you, how do you praise perfection, you know? Um, this guy, when he gives the great filibuster, it's, it's one of the classic moments of film acting. I ask every guest this question, and I'm really curious to hear your perspective, but do you think this movie is still going to be watched in some capacity, even as a source of study, I assume? What's going to happen if Mr. Smith goes to Washington 80 years from now? What do you think? Well, let's hope we're here 80 years from now. You and I won't be, but um, let's hope the planet is still here, and that's a matter of question. One of the problems with film right now, although it's exciting in a way I tell students, is we don't really know what's going to happen in 10 years, 20 years to the medium of film, uh, because it's not even, most films are not shot on film anymore, they're digital. I mean, a lot has changed, and uh, the theatrical market, a lot of students don't even go to films and theaters anymore. They watch streaming things or they watch YouTube videos. And there's a kind of a lack of knowledge of the past that is disturbing to me since I'm a film historian by trade. And uh, Peter Bogdanovich said, um, he doesn't like the phrase old movies. He said, only in film do we use that term. He said, you don't say I'm going to listen to an old symphony or I'm going to read an old novel or look at an old painting. But people say, I'm going to watch an old movie and there's something derogatory about that uh, but why should there be if it's a great movie it's a great movie and uh, uh, it, it you know it stands the test of time if it's great and the fact that it portrays an era that's gone is part of the interest to me and it should be to other people but film I, I think is a kind of ephemeral medium in a sense uh, Hitchcock once said in a hundred years it'll all be cornflakes in a can which is a sad thought but we've lost about 90 percent of silent films and a lot of even uh, talking pictures have been lost and negatives of uh, like Citizen Kane negative was lost in a fire and the searchers doesn't look the way it did when I first saw it because the color is deteriorated and uh, it's an ephemeral medium to some extent so we just hope the film will survive and the world will survive but um, you know I was thinking that there's a story and I, I've always wanted to know what story this is but I read it a long time ago that 
some aliens come to Earth and they find a can of film and they think, well, everything else is destroyed and they wonder, well, like, how could they have destroyed this world and there's just a can of film left and they put it on and they figure out how to show it and it's a Laurel and Hardy film. <laughs> and that's all the <laughs> remains of our world. And so if you had 80 years from now, uh, some aliens come down, they find a copy of Mr. Smith, uh, you could you could know from that what America was about, what our system was like, what our problems were, what what people did who were good-hearted, you know, trying to deal with it, and uh, you could learn a lot from it and, you know, gain a lot of insights, and that's one thing films do for us, uh, whether we're aliens or just regular people. Uh, it's it's very good to introduce students to these films. Absolutely, who haven't right. Seen them. And, uh, the good news is when they see them, they usually like them. That's good. You know, they just need to be exposed. Yeah, there's to hope. Them, and they don't often do it on their own. Hopefully, uh, studies like yours and teachers like you will continue to spread the good word. And speaking of good word, uh, you released your uh, new book on Capra called Frankly Unmasking Frank Capra earlier this year. My recent book, Frankly Unmasking Frank Capra, is the story of how I uh, tried to understand this very complicated director and his uh, how he developed into this very contradictory man with his mm. Dostoevskian traits, uh, uh, kind of his own worst enemy, as he said later in life. Somebody asked him, who is your worst enemy? I'd say, he said, I, I would say Frank Capra, <laughs> because he, uh, he undercut himself in many ways. He had great talents. He was a tragic figure, really. Uh, so I, had, I, I spent four years fighting a legal battle against uh, uh, Capra's archivist, Janine Basinger at Wesleyan University tried to stop my book, as did my publisher, Alfred A. Knopf, and my editor, Robert Gottlieb. These are all well-known people, and so I had to take the book to another publisher, Simon & Schuster, and I got it published, but it took four years to extricate the book because they were trying to block it. I think it's very hard in America to tell the truth about an important American icon, and Capra has a lot of people who adore him and love him, and his films you know, uh, cause that uh, for a lot of r true reasons, but as a man, he was flawed and he was contradictory. He wasn't the man yeah. they thought he was, but a lot of people don't want to know that. They don't want to hear that. They want to just believe that if you made It's a Wonderful Life, you must be a wonderful guy. Are there any other projects in the work that you'd like to mention? Well, I'm writing a critical study of Billy Wilder, who's another one of my favorite directors, and um, I've always admired his satire and drama. I mean, he's a director who had a wide range of everything from comedy to drama and great comedy drama like The Apartment. And he made probably the funniest American sound film, Some Like It Hot. And so I'm, I started doing that when I was writing my uh, critical study of Ernst Lubitsch called How Did Lubitsch Do It, which came out last year. I'd like to pick subjects, first of all, that I think are somewhat neglected. Uh, Lubitsch was a bit neglected. I think uh, people have kind of forgotten him, a lot of people. Some people, you know, love his films, mm -hmm. but a lot of people never heard of him. And Wilder, I think, is is not, his films are watched, but they're often misunderstood. And, uh, anyway, so I, I, I'm having a wonderful time watching his films again and writing about I'll them. And that's part of how I choose to do a subject is, do I run a study this person for years, and as I did with Capra and I'm doing with Wilder. Yeah, no, it's got to be a labor of love, of course. And uh, yeah, it's, yeah, it's hard not to love movies by some of these great filmmakers. Fantastic. Well, Joseph, I can't say enough uh, about how pleased I was to have you on the show here. You were the ideal guest for this particular episode 
And I can I can think of you as an ideal guest for many of these movies that uh, we've featured already or in the future. But uh, I'm I'm pleased that we were able to touch base here, and I got a chance to connect with you, who I consider just a legendary scholar who I've seen in so many different uh, bonus features, making ofs, things like that. And of course, your books. I've come across those in the past as well. You've done some great work, and I hope you will continue to churn out more of that great work. And I wish you the best. Well, thank you, Eric. It's been a joy talking to you because you really love and know the subjects. And uh, I really am grateful that you had me on talking about one of my favorite films and a director who I find fascinating. And I'd love to be on talking to you about any great film you want to talk about or uh, any subject. It's, it's really been a pleasure. Well, that's very kind of you. And in fact, I might take you up on that opportunity somewhere down the road. Oh, that sounds wonderful. I'd love to do it. What a great opportunity that was to interview a man I've so long admired, whom I most recently remember seeing as a much younger-looking man in The Other Side of the Wind, Orson Welles' famous last film that's currently streaming on Netflix. So thanks again to Joseph McBride for appearing on Cineversary. Time now for Standing Ovations. This is where I give a shout-out to a movie, a book, a website, TV program, podcast, or any other work that I think would be of interest to classic film lovers. What's my standing ovation for September? It's a podcast like mine. And it's actually one I've mentioned in a previous episode. It's called The Classic Film Jerks. It's hosted by Michael Giovanni and Andrew Bloom. And in their new September episode, yours truly joins them to dish insights and opinions on Steven Spielberg's 1975 masterwork, Jaws. We have a lot of laughs along the way, so check it out. Now, you can subscribe to, stream, or download The Classic Film Jerks podcast virtually everywhere podcasts are found. Now, that includes iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. It was a lot of fun to join the boys, so I hope you do give that a listen. Okie doke, hopefully you've enjoyed this month's installment of Cineversary, and if you did, I have a favor to ask. I really want to grow our audience, and I need your help. Can you please, please spread the good word about this show to those you know? As a bonus favor, I'd be ever so grateful if you could also leave me positive reviews on whatever platform you hear it from. That really helps this show get discovered by new listeners, and I appreciate that. If you want to suggest a future movie due to celebrate an anniversary that we should consider devoting an episode to, or if you have a burning question for me, or maybe you just want to offer some suggestions or comments, you can get a hold of me, Eric Martin, at cineversegroup at gmail.com. That's C-I-N-E-V-E-R-S-E group at gmail.com. If you want even more free content, I encourage you to visit cineversegroup.com. That's the portal for my Cineverse film discussion group that I launched 14 years ago and which continues to meet weekly in the south suburban Chicago area. Cineverse is a democratic film society that watches and then discusses a predetermined movie that our members pick on a rotating basis. At cineversegroup.com, you can hear podcast recordings of our group discussions and you can read more about the films we study. In case you're curious, I founded Cineverse and launched this podcast for a very important reason. I wanted to foster an appreciation for an intelligent dialogue about memorable films. No one can argue. Viewing films, it's the bomb, right? But diving deeper, hey, that's just as satisfying. Few things in life are as fun to me as digging deeper to learn how and why a picture was made, the impact it's had on culture, society, and other movies, why that film has the power to evoke a strong emotional reaction in each of us, and what it can teach us today. Eager to know what our spotlight picture will be for October? Well, for the month of Halloween, we'll turn appropriately to one of the most acclaimed horror and sci-fi films of all time to commemorate the 40th anniversary of Ridley Scott's stellar study in terror, Alien, originally released in 1979. (laughs) 
This has been your humble host, Eric Martin, reminding you to butter up that popcorn, live a big screen surround sound life, and cherish those classic movies. Here's a secret. They're not getting older, folks. They're getting better. Thanks again for giving us a listen. Thank you.